I would invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Exodus chapter 20. We'll be looking at the fourth commandment this evening. Before reading from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our Lord, we bow in humility and take just this moment to give thanks unto you for the wondrous privilege of the hope of the gospel, for the delight that is ours in calling us and gathering us here even to this place to worship you. There is much that vies for our attention and pulls at the affections of our hearts. And may we this evening truly learn more and more to rest in the finished work of our Savior delighting in the joy of our salvation, feeding ourselves upon the wonderful promises of your word and persevering through reliant grace toward that wonderful rest that awaits us at the end of this age. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's word. Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll skip to verse 8. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servants, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The word of our God, you may be seated. Our studies through the Ten Commandments, we come this evening to the fourth commandment on the Sabbath day. And probably more has been written on the fourth commandment than any of the other commandments, and not just because it is the longest of the Ten Commandments, but it's certainly the most discussed and debated. Now, the commandment itself is pretty clear. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy, labor for six days, but on the seventh, cease from such labor. We're not talking here about complex Hebrew words that are difficult to translate. We're not talking about ambiguous grammatical structures. We're not talking about ancient Near Eastern concepts that are so foreign to us, we don't know how to draw upon them in the 21st century. And yet, there is more debate on the fourth commandment than any other. I think it's safe to say that this is the most misunderstood and misapplied of the Ten Commandments. No one in the church is going around saying, In certain circumstances, I think murder is okay. Lying, stealing, coveting, I can envision situations in which those are fine. There's typically very little debate about the ongoing relevance of nine commandments, but when we get to the fourth commandment, it seems like we make things a little more difficult than they really need to be. I'd consider entitling my sermon tonight the most least understood commandment, sort of a tongue-in-cheek way about how we make things more confusing than they really need to be. One author put it like this, in our pride, we dismiss his law or look for ways to make it irrelevant, less binding upon our lives. Now, while that could be said about all of God's law, I think that's particularly true when it comes to the fourth commandment. 
So let's explore a little bit tonight why there is so much confusion over the fourth commandment. And that's our first point this evening. Why so much confusion or why so much debate over this commandment? And there are several reasons for such debate. One reason, I think, is related to the way in which we think of time. We view our time as a very precious commodity. Now, we've all probably made bad financial decisions, purchased that low-grade model that broke much more quickly than we'd anticipated, sort of kicking ourselves that we didn't just spend a little extra for the better model. But even in situations like that, we can convince ourselves through a little bit of hard work and effort, we can make up for that money that was lost. But time is much different. Once that time is gone, it's not as though investing more time is going to accrue more time. Our days are limited. And how we spend that time and who we choose to spend that time with is extremely important to us. And so we cherish our time. We value it. We hold it as precious. Just think of how much it means to you when someone devotes their time to you. You might think of times when you've gone through a particularly difficult trial in life. Imagine that a friend drops over unannounced to spend time with you, listen, read Scripture, pray. They put their phone away or turn it off, give no indication through their nonverbal communication that they want to wrap things up and be somewhere else. It's an act of love for them to be with you, to give of their time for you. And I think what can help us is learning to see that this is a command of love from the living God who sent His only Son into this world to redeem you. And so giving of your time to Him on this day is really a small way in which we can respond in gratitude. But instead, the temptation is to view our time as our own. We don't don't like to be told what to do at any point in our life, especially with the way in which we use our time. And a second reason sort of related to that is that we just don't see this commandment as very practical. Again, as we think about the other nine commandments, we can see pretty quickly the devastation in our own lives or in the lives of others when we violate the law of the Lord. But when it comes to the fourth commandment, we don't always see the immediate consequences of failing to keep the Sabbath day holy. And so there's a temptation to think of Sunday as a day to catch up to catch up on chores or homework, sleep, emails, or more. Or we see it as a day to get a jump on the week ahead, to get some things in order so that Monday morning is not quite as hectic. There was a tech giant who said a number of years ago, religion is not very efficient. There's a lot more I could be doing on Sunday morning. For him, it was simply a waste of time to carve out a few hours to worship God. What's the point? It's not very practical. It's not very productive. It's not very efficient. Of course, this is a very contemporary way to think, to think in terms of immediate sort of cost-benefit analysis. If the cost of setting aside an entire day does not outweigh or that does cost more than the benefit that I accrue from it, then it's not something that is worth my time. And that type of thinking can influence American church culture as well. It can make inroads into our minds and hearts, tempting us to reason like this. If I wake up on time, I'll be there. If that weekend soccer tournament that started on Saturday 
finishes and doesn't carry over into Sunday, if I get plenty of rest and things get in order and projects are completed, then I'll be there. And so perhaps for some, it's just not a priority in life to be worshiping with God's people. Because again, when you think of your time, the temptation is to think of it as your own. I've heard it illustrated like this. Imagine a beggar on the street asking for money. A man stops and pulls out his wallet, and all he has on him is $7. He counts out six and hands it to the beggar, who snatches it from him, but then strikes him across the face and takes the seventh dollar as well. And this is how we treat the Lord when we fail to honor Him with the one day in seven that He tells us to reserve for Himself. We act as though it's not enough to have six days to do our own labor, but we want the extra day that He just keeps us from having something that we want. And so, as God's people, we want to learn to see the fourth commandment as life-giving, as nourishing for the soul, a day in which we freely gather to delight in the grace of our Savior, not a constrictive day that simply keeps us from doing the things that we want. I think another reason that comes to mind as to why there's so much confusion over the fourth commandment is because of our legalistic tendencies. In over 20 years now of pastoral ministry, I think every time the fourth commandment comes up, it's followed with a list of questions. Tell me what I'm allowed to do or what I'm not supposed to do on this particular day. Just tell me, pastor, what I can do or what I should refrain from doing. Is it okay to go out and eat a meal with my family? Is it okay to kick the soccer ball with my son or daughter in the front yard? What about the backyard? What about a Frisbee? Can I take a nap? Am I supposed to take a nap? Do I have to take a nap? We like lists, don't we? We like things to be black and white, and we like them to be fairly straightforward. Just tell me what I'm allowed to do. But you see, in this, I think we somewhat mirror the children of Israel. As the generations went on, they created more and more laws that were to act as a hedge around the Ten Commandments. And the hedge just kept getting bigger and bigger, especially surrounding the Fourth Commandment. For example, the Jewish people were not permitted to write letters on the Sabbath day. That would be construed as work. Well, that begs the question, well, what's a letter? Well, it's any letters from the alphabet in which there are two or more consecutive letters written together. But the clever Jewish people found ways around that, writing perhaps multiple letters or using different hands or writing in the sand because it didn't last. They were not permitted to travel more than 2,000 yards on the Sabbath day that was considered a Sabbath day journey. But they found ways around that by connecting their houses with rope. That way they're traveling under one domicile and staying within their home. In Woody Allen's radio days, which was set in the 1940s, the narrator tells about these Jewish family sitting at home on some religious holiday in which for 24 hours, they're not supposed to do anything to eat or even turn the lights on. And so they just sit around sort of complaining about the state of the world and their neighbors around them. Their communist neighbors who live next door are out enjoying their day and blaring the radio. And the uncle remarks, I'd like to go over there and burn their house down, but I'm not allowed to light matches today. You see, instead of thinking of lists, we ought to think of principles, 
principles that should be worked out into each of our lives, principles that really get at our heart, the motive, the intent for doing the things that we do or the things that we refrain from doing. Walter Chantry in his great little book called The Sabbath a Delight, taken from Isaiah 58, he puts it like this, it was never intended that God's people be given an exhaustively itemized delineation of what to do in every circumstance. You might think of one example. Perhaps a family has young children who are extremely active, and it would do them well to go on a walk in the afternoon so that they can sit through evening worship. But for another, he finds himself fixated upon getting his steps in on that particular day, and so it may not be a wise use of his time. But the point, again, is to take principles to apply them wisely out of hearts that desire God's loving rule. Heavy-handed legalism, whether surrounding this commandment or any other, can drive people away from seeing this day as a delight, from seeing obedience unto the Lord as a delight. And so when it comes to the fourth commandment, do we find our hearts stirred in love toward the Lord in our desire to walk in obedience? Or do we find ourselves resentful toward him for the demands that we feel he makes of us? Well, let's go on and think of the command itself and what it means to remember the Sabbath day. This is our second point this evening, remembering the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath is called a creation ordinance. We read here in Exodus 20, verse 11, that in the commandment itself, it points us back to the pattern that God established at the very beginning. And so the Sabbath did not originate with the nation of Israel, but in the creation days, the Lord God condescended and set an example for us in this division of labor, rest, worship. You might also remember when we went through Exodus chapter 16, It was there that the Lord promised to give manna to the children of Israel during those years of wilderness wandering. And he told them that the day before the Sabbath, they were to collect twice as much manna, for there would be no manna on the Sabbath day. And so the Sabbath was to be practiced even before the giving of the law in Exodus 20, which is true, of course, of all of God's law. So what does it mean to remember the Sabbath? What is conveyed in this little Hebrew word that is translated remember? Well, of course, to remember is to recall something from the past that has implications on the present, on thoughts, feelings, and actions. And so perhaps the children of Israel are to remember because at the time of the giving of the law, this was a day under neglect. Now, they had been in slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years. They were forced to work every single day of the week, given no break at all. And so even if they wanted to obey the Sabbath day, they were not permitted to under the heavy hand of the Egyptians. And so it's important that they remember that this is a creation ordinance. But there's another key thing that is to be remembered, and that is our redemption. In Deuteronomy, which is a reiteration of the law, before Moses hands the leadership off to Joshua as the children prepare to cross the Jordan River, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15, we read this. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, 
Therefore, keep the Sabbath day. And so not only is the Sabbath a creation ordinance, binding for all people and to be kept until the end of this age, but it is also a day that is tied to our redemption. We remember the Sabbath. We keep the Sabbath as we live our lives out of the reality of saving grace. We live out of our identity as a redeemed people of God. And so it's not simply about what we do or don't do on this particular day, but this day is to help us see that all of life should be shaped and informed and directed by our union with Christ Jesus. B.B. Warfield has a wonderful little article on the Sabbath in which he writes, this is the day on which the tired body rests from its appointed labor, on which the worn spirit finds opportunity for recuperation, an oasis in the desert of earthly cares, when we can escape for a moment from the treadmill toil of daily life and at leisure from ourselves refresh our souls in God. And so what are we to do on the Sabbath day? We are to remember. We are to remember God's goodness in His creation of all things in which He establishes this rhythm and order and pattern to the created order. And we are to remember the blessings of our redemption by living out of the blessed union that we have with Christ Jesus, refreshing our souls in Him. But how do we do this? How do we remember the Sabbath day? Well, this is our third point this evening, how to remember the Sabbath. Well, first, we remember this day as verse 8 teaches us by keeping it holy. Now, when we think of holy in this context, we should think of it as consecration, setting something that is common among the rest apart for something sacred and special. We might liken it to the sacraments themselves, that we take normal water and set it apart for a special or sacred use. We take bread that we buy in the freezer section from Publix and juice that we get off the juice shelf and we set it apart for that special or sacred purpose. There's nothing mystical about the particular day in which we gather to worship the Lord. The sun rises and sets as it does on any other day. But it's on this day that we learn more and more to dedicate ourselves to the Lord God, assemble with God's people to worship Him, listen to His Word, partake of the sacraments, engage in prayer and song together. We also keep this day holy as we seek to promote holiness of life. Just think of how you go all week with the constant bombardment of the values and priorities of the world, the foolishness and the vanity of such things. And you know that you need this day to sort of bring your mind and heart back to the Lord, to recalibrate yourselves, as it were, every single week. When you miss a Lord's Day with God's people, either because of travel or for illness, you sense that something just isn't right, that something is off. Thomas Watson wrote that the Sabbath oils the wheels of our affections, shaking off the dust where the world has clogged those affections toward him. 
But another way in which we keep this day holy is we learn to look beyond this day to a greater final Sabbath rest to come. We are to see that through Christ alone we have access to that heavenly rest. Herman Bavink writes that Sabbath was proof of the covenant that God wants His people to share in His divine rest. And that rest is made ours through the work of our beloved Savior. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And so this day is a pointer that points ahead to that final rest that is for those in Christ Jesus. Richard Gaffin says, faithful and joyful Sabbath keeping we should not forget is among the most concrete ways for the church to witness to a world full of turmoil and unrest as never before, that there does indeed remain a rest for the people of God. And so what we begin to experience that rest even now, we rest from the troubles of life. We rest in the salvation that is ours in Christ the Lord. And we devote ourselves to Him out of hearts filled with gratitude while we still long for the finality of that last day. This is what it means to keep the day holy. But second, we remember to keep this day through the proper and balanced use of labor. The fourth commandment we read here in verse 9 gives instruction not only about what to do on the Sabbath day, but what we are to do the other six days of the week. Namely, labor do all of our work as unto the Lord while we prepare for that day of rest to come. And so just as the Sabbath is a creation ordinance, so the establishment of labor goes back to the creation itself. Now, our culture tends to think of labor as a necessary evil. It's almost like the whole purpose of working is to get to the point where you don't have to work anymore. Just labor so that you can cease from laboring. And we too might be tempted to grumble and complain about our jobs. We complain about our superiors, that they don't understand the trials and workload that is placed upon us. We complain about our inferiors, that they're being insubordinate or not putting in the workload necessary. Or we gossip about our coworkers. And so we're tempted to see our work as inherently evil and something to avoid. But then on the other hand, some might be tempted to see their work as a reflection of their own identity, that they gain value and significance and purpose from their labor. And so the balance that we find in the fourth commandment is critical. Labor faithfully as unto the Lord. Do everything to the glory of God, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Work heartily as unto the Lord, Colossians 3.23. The one who is not willing to work should not eat, 2 Thessalonians 3. And so labor is a gift, and it is a calling from God. And while at the same time, by ceasing from labor on the Lord's day, we show trust in the Lord's goodness to provide. And so we should not be fearful or anxious 
is that we must labor on this day or we will not make ends meet. And But we trust that the Lord will, in fact, answer the prayer that we offer to Him each Lord's Day to give us our daily bread. And we trust in that provision. The world may not think it's very practical, but we bear witness to the Lord's goodness and our trust in Him by ceasing from our weekly labor and resting in the Lord. Now, one question that naturally arises, I think, at this point is, why do we call this the Lord's Day? Isn't every day the Lord's Day? And if we call it the Lord's Day, are we saying that the Sabbath was abrogated and done away with through the work of Christ Jesus and therefore are no longer binding? Well, our confession of faith in chapter 21 helps us to see that it is the resurrection of Christ that changes everything. Before the coming of Christ, it was that seventh day in which God's people looked ahead, anticipated His work of redemption. Our Savior rose from the dead on that first day of the week. After His ascension, He appeared to His disciples on the first day of the week. Even the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, fell on the first day of the week. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, the early church gathered on the first day of the week to worship God and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. In 1 Corinthians 16, the Apostle Paul tells the church in Corinth to take a collection when they gather on the first day. And in Revelation 1.10, the Apostle John refers to the first day of the week as the Lord's Day. And so, by good and necessary consequence, we follow in this apostolic tradition by worshiping our risen Savior on the first day of the week, really setting the tone for how we think of Monday through Saturday, remembering our redemption, reflecting back upon what He did to deliver us from sin. And this is a pattern of, again, rhythm of life that will continue until our Savior returns. Again, our friend B.B. Warfield said that Christ took the Sabbath into the grave with Him and brought the Lord's day out of the grave with him on that resurrection morn. The Puritans had this wonderful way of speaking of the Lord's day. They called it the market day of the soul. You can picture an agrarian society in which the family all week is preparing to go to market. They clean their vegetables, and they gather their eggs, they collect their milk, they churn the butter, they take all of the crafts that they have made throughout the week, and they take it to market in hopes that they will sell or exchange enough to stock up for when hard times come. If they don't show up to market, if they don't prepare well, it's literally a matter of life and death. In the same way, we ought to consider this day as the market day of the soul. It's a day to nourish, to cultivate, to feed our souls, to prepare in advance not only for this day, but to help us prepare for the hardships and trials that are to come, if not this week, that will come inevitably in this earthly life. And so this is not a day of idleness, but it is a day of wholehearted pursuit of the Lord loading up on provisions, as it were, for that which is to come. 
Kevin DeYoung in his little book on the Ten Commandments writes, is Sunday the high point of your week or is it the recovery day where you crash from a busy weekend and recharge for the coming week? If it's a high point, then everything revolves around our preparation for that day. It's a day in which we tend to our soul. And so we learn to see this day as a delight, as we learn to see the delight of our Father in heaven who sent His Son to save us from hell. What a blessing to have this day to be near the living God, to fellowship with one another, to be instructed and to teach our children, to pray fervently to the God who hears and answers prayers, to be refreshed in the joy of the gospel, and to help that next generation to find joy and delight in this day. We might think of the example of one of Jesus' parables, the, the parable of the prodigal son. You remember the older son remains at home. He's full of duty but no joy in his obedience to the father. He obeyed, but only really peripherally, you might say, not with his heart. He obeyed out of duty, but there was no love. It was only out of fear as he saw his father as a strict and over-demanding taskmaster. And so it was like slavery to him. But the younger son, the repentant son, came out of humility and love for the restoration that he knew was there in his father, and it moved him toward love and devotion. And so we delight in this day as we see the charge to cease from our works and rest in Christ. As Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Romans 4, 5 reads, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Someone has said that the most important way we observe the Sabbath is by ceasing from our flawed, sinful labors and trusting in Christ alone for salvation. And their irony somewhat is that resting can be hard work, and yet we are to rest in Christ alone every day of our lives, working to remember working to pursue holiness of life, depending upon the Lord, learning to make Jesus the very center of all. And so don't look to something else outside of him for security, for approval, for righteousness, or for strength. But cease from your labors and cease from any notion of self-righteousness and rest in Christ alone. May God be pleased to work in the lives of his people, cultivating hearts of rest that are found in the joy of his salvation.